Yes, welcome everyone. We are in the post-human era. What does this mean? What does it mean to be post-human? We are going to explore this fascinating, inspiring and exciting notion in our podcast, Post-Humans. Plural because we are going to interview scientists, artists, philosophers, scholars, and everyone who is engaging with this notion and who is helping us to understand more thoroughly and more deeply what does it mean to be post-human in the 21st century. So please be ready for a fascinating journey into the post-human. Debashish, thank you so much for being here today. We are very, very excited to have you speaking about uh, some of your areas of expertise, which are extremely important in general, but even more uh, importantly in this period uh, with our current situation of COVID-19. Thank you so much, Debashish, for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Francesca. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Oh, thank you. So with Debashish, we're going to have uh, two interviews one is on um, posthumanism, integral yoga, and COVID-19. And the other one is going to be uh, about posthumanism and postcolonialism. Uh, now, uh, I want to tell you a little more about uh, Debashish because he has a very interesting biography and his work is extremely interesting. He's also uh, teaching as a professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Debashish is definitely someone you want to keep in mind to study with. Uh, Debashish Banerjee is the Haridas Choudhury Professor of Indian Philosophies and Cultures and the Doshi Professor of Asian Art at the California Institute of Integral Studies, San Francisco, California. His interests lie in postmodern, postcolonial, and cross-cultural approaches to Indian philosophy, psychology, and culture. Banerjee has authored and edited several books on major figures of the Bengal Renaissance such as the Indian poet Ravindranath Tagore, the artist Avanindranath Tagore, and the spiritual thinker Sri Aurobindo. He's also edited books on critical posthumanism and integral yoga psychology. So I'm extremely pleased again and honored to be uh, interviewing the Bashish today. Um, we are going to uh, address uh, many different topics, but because we are living in such a specific, uh, unique historical time, this is also the reason why we're having this uh, interview on Zoom, because of social distancing, uh, I would like to uh, start uh, our interview with Debashish on the topic of uh, posthumanism, integral yoga, and COVID-19. So I've been thinking a lot about posthumanism with this new phase of uh, human history, and I really believe that posthumanists can really bring a lot to the conversation uh, about our daily existence and how to deal with the, the situation, uh, to understand more also what's happening. Uh, so, Devashish, I would like to, for you to enlighten us a little bit about uh, this specific topic of posthumanism, integral yoga, and COVID-19. Uh, Francesca, yeah, indeed, it's, it's a really big uh, topic and really very current uh, I want to situate this a little bit in terms of uh, time and, and the beginnings of integral yoga, so that about 100 years back, we had a big pandemic like this, and it was the which generally known as the Spanish flu. It was in 1918 during the First World War, 
and it spread all over the earth at that time itself. There were many things different between now and then, but still it's something to remember that pandemics like this have come come before. And Sri Aurobindo, who's the founder of Integral Yoga, lost his wife in that pandemic. She died of that flu in Calcutta. And his spiritual partner and collaborator, Mira Alfasa, who joined him in 1920, uh, was in Japan at that time. And she had an experience with regard to this pandemic, which actually is, is sort of, it situates our topic because what is happening on the surface has other components that are happening behind the surface. And for her, it was also a battle with some of the forces that go behind the surface. So she encountered, she says, uh, beings that were spreading this particular disease. In other words, one may think of the possibility that there are other dimensions and other forces that are actually influencing our present sort of situation. But these forces have a relationship with with us, with, with humanity and its own state. The forces don't exist out of nowhere. And in that sense, it's, it's this dimension of the invisible that is in a way today in a global sort of mode uh, coming back to us. So we have to ask many questions about that. What is it that really is behind this? Not just a question of the biology of it, not just a question of how we uh, you know, do social distancing and how governments uh, act to create situations where we are interacting with this disease, but where we as a humanity and a, a world humanity today are actually intimately linked to some of the, you know, the, the backstage effects of this disease. And in, in, even in thinking about that, we enter the post-human, Francesca, because how human is the human? Where, where do our boundaries begin and end? What is it that we are hiding from ourselves? And how large are we? And what impacts us? I think all these questions come into the picture of this particular issue that you're dealing with. Thank you so much. That was very interesting what you, uh, you said. And it's, it's not just about uh, fear and, and anger. It's also about relocating us in the picture. So it's very interesting not just to see us as a, attacked by a virus, but also us in the picture and how the whole thing you know, is, is developing and why it has developed. Because we're always projecting outside of us. And society, I think, was really becoming schizophrenic. It was more and more and more projects and more these and more notions and, and faster and faster and faster. And this pandemic really is drawing everything down, including our own perception of existence. But something that I really cherish as very precious has been this call really to the existential core of myself and really asking what am I doing with my life? And is this what I should be doing with my life? It's very, kind of very, if you want to call the use spiritual as a term, and if you don't like the use spiritual, it's very the mirror of us all over because we don't have any more time maybe to waste doing other things or maybe, you know, like to, to really be outside of ourselves. It's a lot, a lot of work to be done inside. And this is something that I've been talking, you know, with friends and family all over the world, in India and China and, and Italy and South America. And this is something that I can see that everyone, even the people who are really more affected by the situation, even the people who are more uh, saddened and angry by the situation, 
once you bring this aspect, everyone agrees that, oh, yes, this is definitely a very spiritual time or, again, a very existential time or very much a personal time to really work on yourself. Uh, do you think that there is something there for us? Do you think that there is, uh, on some level, could be a precious time for us? Yes, indeed, Francesca. I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the things that this has done is it's thrown us into ourselves. Firstly, due to the seclusion, the fact that we've been forced to distance ourselves from our communities and be individuals, be in very small groups of people that have to maintain distance. And the other thing is that it's put a stop to the wheels of the machine. You know, the entire world machine, the world market is, is sort of forcefully stopped. And as a result, we are thrown into ourselves. We have to actually come into contact with what's going on around us, inside us. And I think you're absolutely right. It's a time to think about, to reflect about what this means, what we can do differently, what kind of a world we'd like to go back to. And also, as you brought out so beautifully right at the beginning, the whole issue of life and death, how we hide from ourselves the things that we repress out of our lives. You know, in the Mahabharata, you find this great debate where uh, the, 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 the eldest brother of the five brothers, Yudhishthira, he goes to a, a, a lake and there is a yaksha or a, or a spirit of the lake. Uh, and the spirit of the lake has killed all his brothers. And he wants him to answer some questions. And the, and the most important question he asks him, is, what is the most amazing thing about life? And Yudhishthira's answer is that it's the fact that all human beings die, but they go through life as if they never will. It, that's For him, that's the right answer. And in a sense, that's what it is. We, we actually draw boundaries in our minds. We draw human boundaries. We draw boundaries between life and death. We draw boundaries between the human and the animal. We draw boundaries between the world of germs and the world of you know, human affairs. We draw boundaries between the in invisible world of occult beings and ourselves. And I think it's time to actually really examine those boundaries and try to build relations, grow into a total, that's the integral, the integrality of, of our existence. Because each of us is the whole in a certain sense. That's really beautiful. Debashishan, this uh, term, I would like to ask you a little more about, uh, let's say, the search for what used to be called immortality and now has been renamed as uh, radical-like extension by the transhumanist movement. And on something that you know, a lot of people see that, that is uh, immature, like eventually everyone and everything is going to end, but on some level, a lot of people are finding very appealing now that death is so obvious that it's going to happen to everyone eventually. A lot of people are finding some refuge in the idea of uh, maybe we don't need to die. Maybe we need to go into biotechnology or genetic engineering to try to get rid of death. Uh, how do you feel about this search for, again, it's, it, the term has been changed because the transhumanist movement got a lot of uh, criticism by using the term immortality. So now it's been renamed as radical life extension. But the idea of trying to get rid, not, not only of aging, but of, of death itself. Yes, Francesca, that, that's uh, actually a very old search. I mean, humanity has been engaging with this issue of death from the beginning of its existence. And I think you find way back going to Egypt, 
you going to you know India, going to China, uh, the mummification. The mummification was a kind of a technology that was related to other internal technologies where people were really trying to imagine how they could become immortal, how they could reinvest the body with a consciousness. So, of course, I mean, we may say that today we think of all that as anachronistic, that that belongs to the past, belongs to a phase of superstition, and belongs to a phase of primitive technology and things like that. But the idea continues, right? And the idea comes to our times, and our times are, you know, we are talking about post-humanism, but it's really the humanist idea, which comes from the Enlightenment, is a highly technological idea. It's the notion of the human as master of the world, as the wielder of tools and technology. And we want to operate that technology upon ourselves to become immortal today. And it's it's very interesting. And I, I don't completely deride that either. You know, we have gone to great frontiers in our understanding of longevity, of the mechanics of the cell, and of the ability to perhaps extend. And even, you know, and we, then we have, as you say, apart from life extension, we have extropianism, where we are thinking about machines or bionic devices into which we can somehow upload our consciousness. So I think on the one hand, this is going on, and it's a very old search. It's only the new version of that search. And it's also very problematic because in a way, it's a furtherance of the division between consciousness and machine. You know, It's like uh, we have to use something, we have to instrumentalize our existence through new instruments. So, uh, the other direction that has been taken is in India, where people have tried to work on consciousness itself, to look at body as a form of consciousness, to look even at machines as forms of consciousness, in a way, that there is nothing. We take the word consciousness. It's not an emergent property. Rather, it's the fundamental property that has become everything else. So to dare to become immortal, I think is a, a aspiration of the human that pushes at the frontiers of our limitations. And I feel that it's a legitimate aspiration. But I think to make the division between man and machine and try to further that is very problematic because apart from that division itself, it creates a new class. It creates a class of haves and have-nots. It sort of decides on who is to have these uh, extreme, you know, post-human in that sense or transhuman in that sense, uh, bodies and who is dispensable, who cannot have that body because they don't have the money for the for for the extension. We have two options: either we accept the fact that we die, or we push at the boundaries of the fact that we die. So I I think that that's very legitimate, but I think it's it's very problematic when we actually make that division between man and machine and propagate the idea of immortality as moving from consciousness into machine in whatever way. Thank you so much, Debashish. I would like to ask you another question connected to this specific topic from more, uh, let's say, a yoga spiritual perspective. There is something that uh, it's to me is very daunting a life with no end. 
when I was very young, the first novel that I wrote, I never published it, but there was this character who started to become very old and everyone around her would die and she wouldn't die. And at first she thought she was very lucky and eventually everyone around her dies and she cannot die. She realized that that is uh, almost her punishment for what she's done in life, which it sounds, you know, like uh, maybe a little too much connected to karma. But, but the question here is uh, a life in which you are not going to die. Isn't that almost a trap, almost a prison? Isn't death on some level? And I'm just asking, and I, I've been thinking on these terms just because it's definitely death, definitely coming back to our uh, memories almost when you hear about all the people that are dying around us. But on the other side, of course, yeah, death is not something that uh, can be easily accepted, especially of the people you love, because maybe your own death is not such a big deal, but the people around you, who you love, seeing them go, that's... That's for me is the tough one, but a life with not death from a from a from, let's say from a from a yoga perspective, uh, what would that mean? And also another question is: uh, Is death an end or is a transformation? Because if we think of death from a chemistry perspective, nothing dies. It's always everything transforms. In chemistry, there is no end. Energy can only transform itself. So I'm not necessarily talking about rebirth or reincarnation, although we could go that way, but is death an end or is it transformation? Yeah, it, absolutely, Francesca. I think those are both very provocative and interesting questions. And I completely agree with you that it's a trap if we remain who we are. You know, it's, uh, you know, Sri Aurobindo discusses this in one place where he's talking about Bernard Shaw's work back to Methuselah. You know, Methuselah was this kind of person who couldn't die, you know. And he, he's saying essentially it is a trap because. There's no change. You are somebody and you remain that somebody. And it, it's after a while, it becomes infinite boredom. You know, it's even like this idea of the even after you die, you live forever as an angel who's playing the harp. You know, the stereotypical image of heaven. After some time, it's going to be boredom because there's no more to to learn. Right. But uh, if we if we think about immortality in other ways, it's not exactly necessarily that. And Sri Aurobindo has a great sentence with which he begins his synthesis of yoga, which you can kind of apply across the spectrum of the issues that you just brought up. The sentence, sentence is this, the condition of a material immortality is to be reborn perpetually in time. So this being reborn, and so as you know, the entire Indian Hindu tradition believes that we are reborn. Even the Buddhists believe that we are reborn. Their understanding of rebirth is different from the Hindu understanding. And Sri Aurobindo's metaphysics of rebirth is different from many of the others. But nevertheless, the idea is that there is something that remains, that we are made up of different forms of consciousness. And the disappearance of the physical consciousness doesn't mean the disappearance of other layers of consciousness. And that there's something that takes another body. So this is the rebirth in time, except it happens unconsciously. We are never asked. I mean, it's without consent that death comes and, you know, takes away the body. And if we are to think about immortality, we have to think about it in terms of different gradations of this being reborn in time. Can we develop from the viewpoint of yoga, can we develop a consciousness that remains conscious at death? In other words, we pass. Now, today we talk about near-death near experiences. 
where people remain conscious and they come back and they can describe a little bit of what happened after they left. But can one be fully conscious and almost entirely almost in in one's body except that only the physical the mother uses the term the residue it's the residue that falls but the rest of it remains and that is completely conscious of the entire period from one life to another enters into another birth that's a form of immortality right there it's an immortality being reborn in time but not losing consciousness another gradation of of that same thing maybe the ability of consciousness to work with matter to the extent that matter holds consciousness in a more conscious manner after all we are material beings that are expressing life and mind and more than life and mind so at a certain point can matter become conscious enough that it is a participant in its own transformation in other words are we can we constantly mutate ourselves we are as you said always changing you know our we, we can see that i mean that's the first meditation of the buddha in his second sermon he says look at your bodies you were not like this even 10 years back you look completely different 20 years back you look totally different you'll be an old person and after that you won't even be here so your your body is changing but can we envisage radical changes of the body can we envisage the possibility of shape shifting as the shamans could do and become another kind of body altogether it's not not impossible one can imagine it and one can see that there are instances in world history where people have attempted that through power of consciousness and i would see that as what yoga holds for the possibility of a physical immortality being reborn and taking on new bodies you know that that kind of a possibility is how i see mortality rather than you know the, the kind of fixed body that remains the same for for forever it's so nice i i love hearing your answers let me ask you one more question on this topic because i could have a whole like 24 hours on this <laughs> One more question. So, um, Debashish, you've also been uh, an incredibly, incredibly inspiring voice in the field of existential posthumanism. And in this sense, for instance, you talk about cosmic consciousness. Do you see everything as conscious? Which kind of tradition should we embrace when we think of consciousness from a posthumanist perspective? The, let's say that the hegemonic tradition of Western philosophy has not been very generous towards non-human others. But now we know that uh, uh, that has been also the limits of uh, Western thoughts on, on so many, for so many different reasons. So when we talk about consciousness, uh, which is a, a very interesting topic, and of course, uh, one that definitely, I think that Indian philosophy really can bring a lot to the conversation. So which kind of insights can we really bring to the conversation when we talk about consciousness and posthumanism? Yes, indeed, uh, Francesca, I think that goes to the heart of it. I think indeed I think the whole issue of Indian uh, you know sort of psychology philosophy uh, yoga generally is one uh, that holds the primacy of consciousness I mean of course one may say that that's not across the board not every Indian philosophy does that you know there are philosophies Buddhism by and large talks about consciousness as an emergent uh, quality something that emerges and then uh you know we can see to what extent it goes but by and large 
Indian uh, philosophies hold consciousness to be everywhere. Everything is conscious in, in that sense. It's degrees of consciousness. You may say, you know, I mean, moving to another kind of modern Western philosopher, moving to somebody like Gilles Deleuze, you can talk about the fact that, that one can think of a plane of imminence, a plane of imminence, you know, which to which everything is imminent. And for the Indian view, that plane of imminence would be Brahman. It would be ultimate, absolute consciousness. That kind of consciousness, which is really a heterogeneous field of consciousness, can modulate itself in a certain way as degrees of consciousness. So that what you have is all consciousness appearing in different degrees, something which is material, seems to be dead, but actually it's not dead. It's it's just sleeping consciousness, consciousness at a certain level or degree of its own self-expression. And so you go up the ladder of different degrees of consciousness. So we can ask the question that we are also a degree of consciousness. We, can't, we can call ourselves a human consciousness, but human consciousness is also Consciousness as it is, pure consciousness that has taken on a degree. So can we actually experience ourselves as pure consciousness? I think philosophers like Gilles Deleuze are going in that direction when they talk when they talk about things like body without organs. Can we essentialize consciousness outside of its specialization till we come to know what it is that has become the specialization? If we can do that to some extent, then we can actually extend it to understand other forms or degrees of consciousness as just degrees of consciousness. We can identify with them. We can become them. You know, that's how we can become. You know, Deleuze is talking about becoming woman, becoming animal, becoming cosmos. We can become these things. And I think uh, the attempt to do that, you know, is, is, the, is really the adventure of consciousness. And I think that's uh, uh, central to uh, one way of understanding post-humanism, where we blur the boundaries between all the various, you know, what is it to be human? What is it to be human is not just to have the boundaries of a human consciousness, but to attempt to become consciousness itself that can actually find its variants in other forms of consciousness. That's uh, an amazing way to end the first conversation because after hearing this, you just want to go on. <laughs> so we're going to end the first conversation with the Bashish, but don't worry, we are go we're going to go more into more discussion with the Bashish on our second topic, which is going to be post-humanism and post-colonialism. So first of all, thank you so much, the Bashish, for, our, for your presence, for your incredible insights and for your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Francesca.